between 1916 and the 1970s, six million African Americans from the southern United States moved to points west like California, north to cities in the Midwest and Northeast like Chicago and Philadelphia, and even as far as Alaska. Not only were people fleeing the Jim Crow South, they were also seeking employment and a better future for themselves and generations to come. As Isabel Wilkerson says in her fantastic TED Talk that we'll link to in the show notes, one person's decision to migrate can change the outcome of an entire generation of a family. I think about the people that made that trip from the South during the Great Migration and how they must have felt so much uncertainty about the place and life that was at the end of the trip. And then I think about the people on the other side of the platform, the mothers, the fathers, the siblings, and maybe even grandparents who watched someone they love and care for head far away to another city. Not knowing when and if they'd see them again. grandmother would talk to me about when she and my grandfather left the Virgin Islands to move to Washington, D.C. because my grandfather had gotten a job in government. As a little kid, I don't think I got it, but now as a woman who is thinking about future generations of my own, I realize how scary that must have been, how uncertain my grandparents must have felt about the future and what it held for them and their children. Like many people who move from one place to another, One of the ways you can create home is through food and dishes that remind you of where you came from. I remember my family making frequent trips to this small West Indian market in a strip mall in Maryland to buy plantains and other Caribbean ingredients. My cousin and I would beg for those champagne colas, (laughs) the like neon orange sodas that are super sweet. We would like pretend it was beer because we thought we were so cool. (laughs) But my family was doing what many families do, which is carrying on tradition and passing on culture through food. Last year, I wrote a story about Harlem rent parties and how these parties during the Harlem Renaissance provided comfort and joy. The food on the tables was often Southern fare like smothered pork chops, black-eyed peas, potato salad, dishes from the South that made the trip with these people, too. As African Americans spread out around the country from 1916 to 1970, Southern dishes moved too, picking up regional inflections that spoke to the specific place where people created their new homes. This movement made Black foodways regional, and one of the most perfect examples is the different variations of barbecue. So in the name of movement, this episode is a little different. You're going to hear Deborah Freeman an amazing food writer and fellow podcaster based in Virginia, in conversation with three people, 
food historian Adrian Miller in Colorado, Chef Matt Horn in California, who makes Central Texas-style barbecue, and Chef Chris Scott, who has roots in Pennsylvania and cooks here in New York. I'll let Deborah take it from here. When it comes to the legacy of African-American barbecue, Adrian Miller is the expert. He's a James Beard Award-winning author and has a book coming out soon called Black Smoke, African-Americans and the United States of Barbecue. I wanted to talk to him to get some historical context on how the Great Migration affected Black food throughout the country, and also to learn how African-Americans became the first ambassadors of barbecue. To me, the Great Migration was pivotal to creating what we call soul food today. Because, you know, if you're in the South, they don't really use the term soul food a lot. It's just home cooking or country cooking or just Southern cooking. You know, in my book that I wrote on the history of soul food, I argue that soul food is really the condensing of the Southern menu that happens when people leave one place and go to another. And like any migrant, you know, when you get to the new place, you try to recreate home. And if you can do it with the exact same stuff that you had at home, you do, but often you don't. So you have to find substitutes. You're relying on either the dried or canned or frozen version of something. And then you're experiencing new people around you, right? Other immigrant groups. And so you're looking at what they're doing and borrowing from them. I I think it was pivotal to creating soul food. So you see the transplanting of different regional Southern cuisines around the country. And it followed a similar pattern, like people along the East Coast, you know, the uh, Florida, Carolinas, Georgia, Virginia, you know, they show up in D.C., Philadelphia, New York, Boston. And so the the food of African-Americans usually aligns with kind of the regional taste of that area. The middle of the, the Deep South goes to the Midwest, Cleveland, Chicago, Kansas City, St. Louis. And then on the western edge of the South, those are the people that go to the West Coast. So L.A., San Francisco, Portland, Seattle often had food from like Texas, Louisiana and, and Arkansas. And one way is the difference between, say, getting fresh peaches for your peach cobbler versus canned, fresh black eyed peas versus dried. Collards are popular because that was the one sturdy green that could survive the train ride or the truck ride out of the South. Barbecue probably is a really good example how barbecue kind of becomes regional and how the African-American migration reflected on that. Barbecue is an interesting example because African-Americans were really the early barbecue ambassadors. So the 1700s and 1800s, with only a few exceptions, African-Americans were the ones who were tasked with making barbecue. By the time we get to the 19th century, when people outside the South want a taste of authentic Southern barbecue, they're often calling upon an African-American, what we call pitmaster today, to do that cooking. So we've got stories of African-Americans being put on trains to places all over the country to do that authentic kind of Southern, dig a hole in the ground, fill it with hardwood coals cook a whole animal, keep flipping it, and you're dousing it with the vinegar and red pepper sauce. To most people, that was barbecue before the 20th century. One thing is you you find whole animal cooking in the early years. That's what everybody was doing. And it was only until after the 1900s began that we start to see the proliferation of restaurants that specialize in lesser cuts. And I think that's a reflection of the transition from barbecue from being a rural phenomenon to being an urban phenomenon. 
in urban settings, it probably wasn't as easy to cook a whole pig. These African-American cooks, as well as white cooks who have expertise in cooking smaller cuts, then start to do their thing. We start to see brisket showing up in places like Central Texas and East Texas, although in East Texas it tended to be more chopped and sliced. We see spare ribs showing up in places like Memphis and Kansas City, St. Louis. Some of these early towns where they went to, there's stories that basically African-Americans were hanging out around the slaughterhouses and they're waiting for them to close. And so they went in there and got all the stuff that the slaughterhouse owners didn't think anybody wanted to eat. And that would be things like spare ribs. So they would just go in the trash and wash them off and clean them up. And that's the story of rib tips. In the early years, you've got some African-American entrepreneurs in Chicago who said, yeah, you know, these, these places, when they created the, the St. Louis cut for ribs, they were cutting off the rib tips to create a more uniform, rectangular look to the ribs. And so you had all this excess product and someone said, hey, I can cook that up and turn that into something. It's really interesting. It's, it's whole animal cooking. And it's not just pigs. It could be pigs, sheep, cows. And then it was really later that we start to see the regionalization. And that's just tied to local tradition, especially with the side dishes that emerge. When African-Americans are going to different places in the country that they haven't been before, is there an aspect of communal dining that kind of takes place? Does barbecue kind of bring them together as far as community is concerned? Because there's a touchstone to what they knew. Barbecue was the ultimate party food in terms of uh, American gatherings in the 1700s and 1800s. And the reason why it was scalable, depending on how many people you wanted to get together, all you had to do was just make sure you had enough labor. Usually that was enslaved labor to dig a long enough trench, butcher enough animals, process it, cook it, and then figure out a way to serve all these people. There's stories of barbecue gatherings of 10, 25,000, 50,000 people. Now, they didn't have satellite imagery back then, so I think a lot of this is hyperbole. But anyway, it, it, it was a big crowd. And so we see African-Americans being tasked not only for large white gatherings, but also gatherings with their own community. The large gatherings could be a political rally, any kind of civic celebration, any kind of like civic improvement. Like if they finished a railroad, you know, connected a railroad or finished a big bridge or dam or something, they would have a barbecue. Within the Black community, it was really more tied to, say, like church, like especially revivals, uh, multi-day revivals, uh, any kind of family reunion. Political rallies were big. And then Emancipation Day celebrations. And there were various types of Emancipation Days. I mean, Juneteenth is the most popular one now. 150 years ago, Juneteenth was just one of many celebrations that happened on different dates around the country. That's how a lot of African-Americans got their chops, was really on these large barbecue outings. Previously in the 17, 1600s and 1700s, barbecue was more small scale, more private, more something that wealthy people did. But as civic pride gains momentum, especially after we form as a country in the late 1700s, you know, Fourth of July especially was a big barbecue outing. And so people would, would want to go big. Barbecue met that moment. And in order to make that happen, you had to have a lot of people doing the cooking and they turned to enslaved African-Americans early and then free African-Americans later to do that cooking. When does the transition switch from African-Americans being the pit master to white guys with tattoos and hipsters? That look, when, do, when does that shift happen? So it seems to me just looking kind of through uh, TV shows, magazines and other things, it really starts to happen in the 1990s. Before the 1990s, it was no big deal to include African-Americans in any kind of media on barbecue. 
In fact, I think the the ethos was, why wouldn't you? Um, but in the 1990s, that starts to change with the emergence of foodies. So all of a sudden you have a lot of middle class people intensely interested in food and they've got disposable income and they'll travel to get a taste of the quote unquote real thing. Now, we've always had people interested in food before, but usually they were very wealthy people. And so a lot of the high end magazines like Gourmet, Bon Appetit, Food and Wine were really catering kind of the upper class crowd. But over time, they start to cater to middle class people. With the rise of foodies, you've got this explosion of food media. And so at the very time that foodies are looking for information on how to get the real thing, food media starts deciding who gets presented to them as experts. And they tend to pick white guys and several different types of white guys. The, uh, the kind of hipster guy really emerges as a, a kind of an icon and even an archetype at that time. You know, with the internet and the, the creation of the creative class and all that kind of stuff, it kind of, it made sense for those things to get wetted. So I think it's the 1990s when this all really starts to change and then builds in momentum and momentum to the point where until very recently, it was just when it came to barbecue, you were just presented white guy after white guy after white guy. Now I'm happy to say that that's starting to change. I don't know. I'm seeing seedlings of change. Okay. Not huge, but um, I, I don't know how much change will happen, but it needs to. Could you also give me an example of a pitmaster from the South who's moves to a different location in the United States and reestablishes there. I'm sure there are several stories like that. So one of my favorites is a guy named Columbus B. Hill, probably born in the 1850s in West Tennessee. We just don't have a lot of information about him and, and I'm still digging. But he shows up in Denver in the late 1870s. He had a brother here who was a very prominent waiter, a guy named Mohican B. Hill. He's starting to do barbecues on the regular for large crowds. Like the first recorded barbecue he does was for the Denver merchants. He does a barbecue for 5,000 people in Denver in the early 1880s. And then by the time we get to 1890, he does a barbecue for the laying of the cornerstone of the state capitol building in Colorado. So on July 4th, 1890, 25,000 people showed up in front of the capitol building to get a taste of his barbecue. And he was doing pigs, cows, sheep and even possum were on the menu. And the cool thing is that local Denver newspapers, you know, took the time to interview this guy, celebrated him, drew illustrations of him. And we don't get that kind of recognition for African-American barbecuers in the 1800s very often. We're lucky to even get the first name of the barbecuer. So to get this whole guy's full name and everything. Now, the interesting thing is, though, the newspapers revealed their biases because some newspaper had him speaking fairly standard English treated him with dignity. And you would have another newspaper reporting the same event, having him speaking in basically Southern plantation dialect and drawing a caricature of him in their paper. The stark contrast really shows how white editors with an agenda shaped public opinion of African-Americans. Even after that July 4th, 1890 barbecue, he's doing barbecues for thousands of people for the rest of his career. The last big barbecue he does is around the mid 1900s, like the first decade, you know, the aughts does a barbecue for the uh, U.S. Navy fleet that is docked in Seattle. He welcomes the fleet with the big barbecue. They brought him out from Denver to Seattle to do that barbecue. My next book is going to be Black Smoke, African-Americans in the United States of Barbecue. And it's really part celebration, part restoration. 
The celebratory part is just really to show the glory of African-American barbecue culture, to talk about these cooks who have been forgotten or never named in the first place, to show how they shape this cuisine, to talk about how barbecue shows up in Black culture and how really African-Americans were the standard bearers for excellence in barbecue for at least two centuries. And the restoration part is to just say, look, given the contributions of African-Americans to barbecue, you can't talk about barbecue in this country without mentioning this group of people who were so instrumental in its shaping and its popularity. What's the legacy of the Great Migration on food and specifically African-American food? On um, Black food, I think it, it really changed Black food to become um, more cosmopolitan than it already was in its roots. African-American food from the beginning has been a bringing together of the culinary ingredients, techniques, and traditions of West Africa, Western Europe, and the Americas. So it's one of the early fusion foods. But then uh, as, as people leave the South for other parts of the country, they encounter different people. And so we start to see a mixing of other food traditions from other groups into African-American cuisine. I think that that diversity enriched African-American foods and then vice versa. African-Americans have uh, influenced the palates of other groups and really influenced the palates of our major cities. Without those African-American contributions, I don't think our major cities could claim to be the food centers that they often say they are. We brought a richness uh, to their tastes as well. I think it was transformative, not only for within the community, but also outside of the community. California isn't necessarily the first place that you think of when you mention barbecue, but there is a legacy of pitmasters who are located outside the South. And a great example is Matt Horn, the pitmaster in Oakland who draws on Central Texas and Southern culinary traditions. Horn is inspired by the pitmasters who have come before and is putting his own spin on what he calls West Coast barbecue. I mean, I think the the lessons that I've learned in barbecue started at a very early age. I mean, just seeing like the elders in my family standing around the barbecue pits, lighting fires and that sort of thing. But I really started honing the craft once I figured out that's what I wanted to do in life. So I started using my grandmother's backyard as pretty much as a testing ground to develop the craft. I did really extensive R&D in that backyard. I learned a lot. I learned a lot, you know, through my early failures of trying to produce really great barbecue. That definitely was the catalyst that helped bring me to where I am today. My grandmother used to butcher hogs and she used to do whole hog barbecue. Earlier on as a child, you see the elders in the family, you know, cooking, doing the barbecue, seeing the hogs and that sort of thing. But I didn't have an appreciation for it as a child because I was looking at it through a, a youthful lens. So it's like we wanted pizza and burgers, our family was cooking what was native to them and what they grew up on. And as I've gotten older, I've, I've learned to appreciate it even more. She was the one that was doing it. And my grandfather, uh, you know, my dad's dad, they would always cook and do these really big gatherings, barbecue gatherings. And looking back on it now, it's like that was the great unifier of how we would come together as a family, whether it be for a wedding, for a union or for, you know, a funeral. Barbecue was always that thing that kind of glued us all together. So you're out in California. Are you born and raised in California? That's where I grew up. Very humble beginnings. Born and raised in the Central Valley in Fresno, California. 
We're right in between the Bay Area and, and Southern California. Kind of grew up in the country out there. That's how we got it going. I mean, my mother's father was from Louisiana. Her mother from Oklahoma. Then my father's parents, they were from Oklahoma as well. And then we have family that's spread out around Alabama, Texas, places like that. Being in California, what you're doing is West Coast barbecue. And so what is that? <laughs> okay, so here's the thing. So we're not one of the barbecue regions. and We're not the, like the birthplace of barbecue or anything like that. Out here on the West Coast, you have people that really have an appreciation and love for barbecue. I grew up on Santa Maria style tri-tip, which is cooked over a direct fire. You know, it's nothing like the briskets we're doing now. But when I say with Horn Barbecue that we're doing West Coast barbecue, the fact that we have no established barbecue traditions, and this isn't like, I would say, a barbecue region. I mean, it's becoming a new barbecue region, but it's a place where you have people from all walks of life, right? The fact that you have people that have come from so many different places, from the South and the East Coast, whatever the case may be, we're able to cook food that's reflective of where we are, but then also pay respect and tribute to those that have paved the way for me. I do a you know Texas-style, Texas-inspired barbecue joint. We lead with the beef or whatnot. But you know, if you go down South and you ask them what barbecue is, barbecue is whole hog and pork and everything like that. You know, We're doing whole hog regularly here at the restaurant. But then this kind of new style of creating a different path of what we're doing here at Horn Barbecue, you know, I'm adding oxtails into the mix. We're doing lamb. We have a really great sausage program. So we're not set on one particular region. What we do is we, we just kind of do what's reflective of the Bay. It's a variety of people here from all walks of life. Our barbecue is reflective of that. I feel like, you know, if it wasn't for those individuals that made the great migration, we wouldn't have a taste or an understanding of the influence of the food that we eat today. The reason why I say that is that cooking barbecue is the fabric of America. But then when you look at the history of it, looking back early in the 1500s, where slaves are the ones that took those off cuts and those bad cuts of meat and turned it into something that they wanted to present to their family, something that would be savory and enjoyable and edible. That creativeness, but then also the perseverance in it, I think that's what makes up barbecue. Waiting and wanting to get out of their situation, I feel like the elements of barbecue with patience, I mean, that works hand in hand as well. You know what I mean? Without those that have come before me, I mean, I wouldn't be where I am. Your location, was that purposeful to choose that particular spot or was that just kind of happenstance? I honestly believe that it was destined for me to have this location and to be where I am. Coming from the valley, not living in the Oakland area, we went from doing our farmer's market and I decided that we were going to go the pop-up route. I sent emails out to breweries like all over the Bay Area. There's only one that responded back and they were in Oakland. When they responded back, it was like I was being led there and we started doing our pop-ups there. The support that we receive from people, I mean, literally from all walks of life, supporting everything that we're doing with the barbecue, that was really big for us, for both me and my wife. That let us know, like, hey, you know what? This is where we need to be. For us to find a location that we did, especially with this being like the last stop of the Great Migration, and then all the rich history in Oakland, it just made sense for us to be there and to create something wonderful. And there's barbecue that was here and whatnot, but I just feel like we're bringing something different. We're presenting people with a different way of consuming that barbecue, of how it's presented, how we serve our guests, and really giving them a totally different experience. 
there's so many pitmasters in the past. Slowly, people are starting to talk about that now. Slowly, people are starting to uncover that. What is the future of Black pitmasters? Do you think that there are people who are starting to become more interested in it, like yourself, or are people kind of delving more into a chef role versus a pitmaster role? In America, you look at the Black representation of chefs and kitchens. I mean, you really don't see a lot of head chefs that are Black. Then you look at that and you're like, are the, are the same opportunities being presented to everyone? And then there may, there may be this other side of it where it's like, okay, maybe they're not looking to be chefs or whatever the case may be. So then when you look at barbecue, I say this all the time where it's like, this is our culture and everything that I do is for the culture. What I mean for that is that there is a responsibility that I carry to pay respects to those that come before me, those whose shoulders I stand on, those we've never heard about those men and women that spent those countless hours around that fire cleaning those hogs and cooking those hogs on the ground, and they don't get that acknowledgement. So it's like, how can we continue on with what we're doing in terms of pushing the craft forward, but then also moving barbecue culture and then not losing our history in it? Paying respect to those, but then also teaching the next generation. I feel like that's really important. I started this journey about five, six years ago. A lot of people question, like, you know, what are you doing doing barbecue, man? What are you, that's what you're going to do? You do it for a living? The thing about it is I found peace in it. With me, I had to understand the why. I knew what it was that I wanted to do. I wanted to cook some really great barbecue, make people happy. But then when I started reading stories about the lack of diversity in the Barbecue Hall of Fame, things like that, that bothered me because it's like the ones that have taught and brought and been vital in introducing these techniques and this craft of barbecue, for them to not be acknowledged, it was very disappointing for me. It touched me in a way where it made me realize, like, hey, you know what? This is more than me just cooking really great food. I'm not going to compromise my product or compromise my process of how we do our barbecue. I demand excellence with everything that I do. But then also I have to tell a story that will resonate with the next generation while also paying tribute to those that are long gone. I feel like the more opportunities that we give our youth, we set them up for success. Of course, education is very important, but you can create a lifestyle, a business, a career within the craft of barbecue. Everybody barbecues, right? So it's like everybody has a barbecue grill in the backyard and you kind of have these barbecue enthusiasts and whatever the case may be. But I feel like there's a deeper conversation with barbecue that has really rich tradition For people that have lost so much regarding culture, we have to be able to hold on to something. And barbecue can't be the one thing, the true fabric of America in which that we've instituted. It can't be something that can be that, you know, that will be lost. That's something that's really big with me. There's a duality to that. That sounds challenging. When you think about it, it is. I always remind myself, like, you know, you wouldn't be here if it wasn't for other black men and women that paved the way for you. I always have to pay that respect. It's always on my mind. I'm always conscious of it. But then being in the community, you see young kids, you're reading stories about what's going on in the country. You think about racial injustice, all this different stuff. You know, I'm a father as well. It it concerns me. So I feel like, hey, you know what, with this craft that I decided to go into, I have that responsibility to be a light in this dark tunnel, but then also tell a story that may inspire some young kid, some young boy or girl out there. I'm conscious of it. 
I have plans to really dive into that and to work on that, creating opportunities for youth to learn the craft of barbecue. Are there ways that you could branch out to even expand past the community so that people on the East Coast, in the Midwest, who may not be able to see what you're doing on a daily basis to incorporate them as well? I've formed a production company and this company will be able to tell like stories like that through filmmaking and the visual aspect of it, but then also in books, interviews in that way, and just literally just being sincere, being true to myself in terms of like what my plan and what I'm looking to do. If you make money in cooking barbecue, you can make really great money. But I think that you get far more of a reach with the impact if you could just touch somebody and let them know that they can do that. I feel like we've done that with Warren Barbecue. A lot of support, a lot of people that are reaching out that are grateful for what we're doing and, and that sort of thing. But, you know, I want to continue to touch people and inspire people. In terms of barbecue, literally, like, you can just go out, light a fire and express your love through your barbecue. Be patient. You put out a great product, but then you'll be able to touch people in a way that other people may not. Barbecue is our country's history, country that's divided and, you know, racial inequality and just all the different things that we're dealing with in this country. Barbecue is the one thing that brings people together through love. I would just encourage more people just to go out, close their eyes, dream, light that fire and get some meat on the grill. I wanted to speak to Chef Chris Scott because he's such a great example of how African-American culinary traditions can thrive, regardless of location. His family roots are in Virginia, but he grew up in Pennsylvania. Today, his cooking blends Southern and Amish influences. Chef Scott is always frank about the legacy of African-American chefs and the contributions that they've made to American cuisine, and always makes sure that history comes through in his dishes. My family is originally from um, a city called Rappahannock, right in Virginia. And during the uh, Great Migration, after uh, the slaves were freed, you know, they made their way north and they relocated in Coatesville, you know, which is very close to uh, Pennsylvania Dutch country. They kind of intermingled there with the uh, existing German and Dutch and, and Amish folk. And I think that they brought a lot of what and how they lived in Virginia, obviously, with them to this new home, you know, and that went from everything all the way up up to cooking. They brought a lot of Southern influence. My grandmother had a garden that was obviously taught to her from her ancestors, you know, and um, so a lot of the foods that we ate, we grew in our own yard. She grew a rhubarb and different potatoes and strawberries. I think she even attempted to have a peach tree at one point. And right next door, Miss uh, Mitchum, who had uh, figs and Concord grapes, and they would trade off and on. And, you know, both of them would make, you know, the preserves and and everything. But a lot of that Southern influence uh, came with them. And is all the way up, you know, to where we are now. Like I said, you know, everything from food to, you know, the Southern hospitality, the way that we are towards our neighbors, our religion, you know, like everything that my grandparents were came from their ancestors too. 
you know, talk about farm to table, you know, that is, you can't get much more farm to table than that. I imagine today you're still utilizing those practices, just kind of mimicking what you saw and trying to use that sort of ingredients and background in what your grandmother was doing. Because of where my ancestors relocated in Coatesville, they were bringing their Southern influence there. And after, I'm sure, a couple of years, you kind of learn what the food vibe is in Coatesville, you know, or in that part of Pennsylvania. You start getting in tune with the scrapple. You start getting in tune with the, the apple dumplings. You start getting in tune with the various forms of chow chow and the pickling techniques. You know, the seven sweets and seven sours that the Amish are definitely into kind of made its way onto our table as well. But there were also a lot of Southern influences. And because Southern agriculture really plays a part, an integral part in soul food or Southern cuisine, things that we grew were things that my grandmother would try to recreate, just like the Amish would. Both cultures, the the Southern culture that came from our family and the Amish culture, you kind of make the best of what you have. You kind of make something from nothing a lot of the time. So we were very similar in that. But we were bringing a lot of, you know, the fried chicken, the, you know, the pork shoulder and all of that, and then would intermingle that with, you know, the potato soup and the cabbage and potatoes and a lot of these new ingredients like caraway seed that were coming from the Pennsylvania Dutch. So by the time that I was born and alive and conscious and all that, the two cultures already clashed. They came together already. So when I was coming up, that food was already there. It was basically all that I knew. I kind of, you know, made that little tag phrase, Amish soul food, you know, and it just caught the world by storm. But to me and to people of Coatesville, that food has always been there. A lot of the stuff that that I cook, it's not necessarily a lot of the dishes per se but more so her approach to food and feeding people. Like she did it with such love and joy. Whatever I make, you know, it comes from me the same way that it came from her. There are specific recipes like the biscuits, for example, that were passed down and that we still hold so high in our family and glad to share it with the world. But it was mainly her approach. She would always set a place for a guest in case someone came off the street or if someone knocked on the door, you know, and needed some food, you know, and that was taught to her. Always in our restaurant, especially when my wife and I had our restaurants in Brooklyn, that was somewhat the same approach. There were people that we knew in the neighborhood that didn't have food. There were people in the neighborhood that we knew couldn't eat all the time, you know, so when we would see them, we would hook up a care package, drop it off on the doorstep, see them out front. People wouldn't even have to ask. The whole approach to feeding the community and feeding people with love that came from my grandmother into me, just from watching her, just from hearing conversations, just from being around her, almost through osmosis, you know, it's now in me for me to share with the world as well. How have African-Americans influenced America's food, just their palate? How, how have African-American chefs and cooks, how have they done that? American food, to me, is 
like soul food and Southern cuisine. These days are so much of a fusion from some other country or some other culture. But because we were here, everything that we came up, our influence has been so strong on the table since day one. Black folks, black women, black men have been in kitchens since day one. Our influence through food and through taste and flavor and bringing some of, of our own culture into that as well has been there since day one. Now, you know, you have the Appalachians, the white a- Appalachians, black Appalachians. You have the indigenous folk, you know. For example, corn is one of those staple ingredients that were used by the indigenous people of this country, as well as the Appalachian whites, Appalachian blacks. So cornbread is one of those types of staples here in this country that crosses many cultures here in the USA. But I think that Black folk kind of had their hand in the pot since day one. And right about now, I guess over the last maybe 12 or 13 years, that people are really starting to pay attention to that. Some people are really starting to do their homework and understand that a lot of the things that they were eating has come from, from us. It's good to, to see kind of things becoming full circle. There are so many chefs, yourself included, who are starting to push the narrative about what the restraints are and the confines of soul food or what the mainstream considers traditional Black food. What do you see as the future of Black food? Where do you see it going? I think that, you know, that we're really pushing it forward slowly but surely because Black chefs are just as different as the Eurocentric chefs. We're all bringing individuality to the table as well. You have African-American chefs that are doing Southern food, but more upscale in a fine dining kind of manner, like Eduardo Jordan or Kwame or my good friend Adrian Cheatham. And then you got folks like me and Todd Richards and stuff that do that. But we also keep it real in that, you know, genuine vein as well. Mostly all of us are sort of breaking the stereotype of what America assumes black food is. Everyone and their mama is is all about, you know, fried chicken, ribs, watermelon, red velvet, this and that, you know, and although that is an integral part of it, it's not the the end all be all. A traditional Southern dish back in the day was a piece of day old cornbread and a stew made from whatever you grew in your garden, some type of vegetable stew. If you were lucky, then you would have a bone to, to flavor that. You know, and that will go over top of the dish and that would be your meal. A lot of the other things, as you know, are celebration foods and that's a whole different story. But that's where the stereotype or where people assume that is the whole basket right there. But it runs so deep. Moving forward, I do believe that probably within the next, you know, five years or less, that African-American food will have its place finally at the global table. And people will understand that it's so much more than the celebration foods. People will understand the different strains of beans, the different strains of rice, the different grains that were used, things that were coming from the garden, why they come from the garden. Just from following a simple recipe, you know, like I always tell people, you can tell a Southern recipe by how it's written if it came from a rich Black family or from a poor Black family. If you have things on that recipe card, like butter, sugar, cream, and all that, then more than likely they they had loot. But if you look at a recipe, old Southern recipe, 
you know, that was just like corn and water, poor folk, you know, but there are different ways to make these meals, embrace that culture, keep it real or take it up a notch like Eduardo's doing. There's so much beauty to what we do culinarily. Once you are able to look at them all and make a bigger scope of our work, it's going to be at that global table soon enough. I, I certainly believe that. And glad to be part of this movement as well, you know, because we're opening the doors for the next generation. James Williamson and Omar Tate, Kurt Evans, you know, like all these new school cats that are coming for it, but are still hold that torch as proudly as we did in our generation and the chefs before us. I always say that this food will be with us before I was born and long after. So whatever I can do to remain true while I'm here, that's what I want to do. And I'm glad to see that it's going to be in good hands moving forward with cats like Omar, you know, so I'm happy for that. A Hungry Society Presents Boundless Horizon is produced and hosted by Korsha Wilson, co-produced by Alexandria Mish, and our sound engineer is Akira Charles. The show is made possible by a grant from Lodge Cast Irons. You can learn more about the show by following at A Hungry Society on Instagram and Twitter and by checking out ahungrysociety.com. The African slash American Making the Nation's Table exhibit opens in April of 2021. And you can support the Museum of Food and Drink by making a donation at MOFAD, that's M-O-F-A-D, Thank you for listening.